First on Radio 4, we join Stephen Fry for another Fry's English Delight. Today, Stephen measures the size of the language as recorded in dictionaries and finds out how we acquire new words. Like this one, Bangalore. Do you know what that means? If you think it's having sex with Lord Sugar, you're fired. But if you associate it with modern business practices, you're on the right track. The point is, you want to know, don't you? And that's what this program's about our addictive appetite for new words. I get addicted to the dictionary. It's the book that I always want to carry. It seems whatever I do or where I go, every time I find a word that I don't know, I get addicted to the dictionary. Addicted to the dictionary. In one way or another, we can't get enough of the dictionary. Words without end. Like the ever expanding universe, the English lexicon is getting bigger and bigger. And what about our personal lexicons? Is the vocabulary that we know and use on the increase too? You might want to grab a pencil and paper, as in a minute I'm going to give you a mini vocab test. Purely optional, no need for panic, but first let me ask you a question. How big was the English lexicon in the time of this eminent gentleman who set out to do for the English language what Newton had done for the stars? Dr. Johnson, Your Highness. Ah, Dr. Johnson! Damn cold day! Indeed it is, sir, but a very fine one. For I celebrated last night the encyclopedic implementation of my premeditated orchestration of demotic Anglo Saxon. <laughs> no, nope, didn't catch any of that. <laughs> well, I simply observed, sir, that I'm felicitous. Since during the course of the penultimate solar sojourn, I terminated my uninterrupted categorization of the vocabulary of our post, Norman Tang. Dr. Samuel Johnson, of course, as portrayed by Robbie Coltrane in the ever popular Blackadder. His dictionary, which appeared in 1755, wasn't the first, nor was it even among the first dozen. Over the previous 150 years, more than 20 dictionaries had been published in England, the oldest of these being a Latin English word book by Sir Thomas Eliot, scholar and diplomat, published in 1538. But Dr. Johnson's dictionary is the most eminent, and the answer to my question, how many words did it contain, is a mere 43,000. But for over a century, it held sway on every educated man's bookshelf. Here it is, sir, the very cornerstone of English scholarship. This book, sir, contains every word in our beloved language. Ooh. Every single one, sir? Every single word, sir. Oh, well, in that case, sir, I hope you will not object if I also offer the doctor my most enthusiastic contrafibularities. <laughs> I think Dr Johnson would have approved of Blackadder's invention, perhaps even buying the digital versatile disc. And, in fact, it very nearly means something. Unpicking contrafibularities, you have contra, against, plus fibula, the small bone in the lower leg, thus pulling one's leg. Surely a worthy addition to his dictionary. His dictionary was the dictionary, until the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, was born in 1928. It was a long gestation, 
Work first started in 1857. It contains 400,000 words, a tenfold increase since Dr. Johnson. The OED's second edition, published in 1989, contains 600,000 words, an increase of a third over 60 years. It's unlikely that a third edition will ever be printed as it's been online since the year 2000 and receives 2 million page views a month. And of course, the OED is not the only dictionary. Across the Atlantic, there's the almost as venerable Merriam Webster, and here we have Collins, Longmans, and Macmillan. Joining me today to ponder on the increasingly rapid transformations in the world of dictionaries is Michael Rundle, editor in chief at Macmillan Dictionaries. Michael, where are we going with all this? 600,000 words in the OED in 1989. That's a sort of pre internet 1989. Where are we now in 2013? Or is that a, an impossible question to answer in just terms of numbers? It's very hard to answer that with any confidence, yes, because it just depends on what you're counting.、Um, I mean, suppose you include. Every technical term, like、uh, the names of every known insect or plant, that would immediately take it well over a million. And then there are all the varieties of English worldwide, you know, the vibrant language communities in places like Australia, India, the Caribbean, and so on. All have their own varieties of English, all have their own vocabulary, some of which wouldn't be familiar to people in the UK. And then there's just natural growth.、Uh, language is a dynamic system and it will keep on growing. And at Macmillan, we update our dictionary now four times a year because it's online. Without wishing to. Big up your rival too much, but I'm sure everybody recognises it, it was an extraordinary scheme when it was first proposed by, I think, the British Philological Society yeah, in the 19th century. Was,、yeah. And the idea, which was so revolutionary perhaps, was not that words should be fixed. It wasn't that you should be told what a word means, it's that it's a dictionary of usage rather than a dictionary of, of、uh, as it were, prescription. And yeah, and, and really that, that's the founding principle of the OED. And, and, and it was also Johnson's approach as well that, that anything that he said in the dictionary must be based on evidence of usage, of what people do when they're using these words in normal communication, whether they're writing or, or speaking. And, and that's, that's a very important principle. And、um, a lot of people have the wrong idea about dictionaries. And they think that dictionaries are there in order to tell us what's right and what's wrong and to let in the sort of good words and keep out the bad words、uh, and so on. But, but you're right that, that not only the OED, but lexicography in general is about observing words in use and, in a way, distilling the information from that into a dictionary entry. Yes. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's as preposterous for a dictionary to tell a word what to be as it would be for a zoologist to tell a bird how to behave. <coughs>、yeah. You might think you know how the yeah, bird behaved,、yeah. but if it suddenly did a new behaviour, you wouldn't say, no, you've made a mistake, bird.、Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to redefine your, your understanding of that bird. Yeah. Right, well, let's,、um, let's take a minute to give our, I'm sure, very erudite Radio 4 listeners a vocabulary challenge, a test of the size of their personal lexicons. Pencil and paper at the ready. Here are your six words. Do you know the meaning of cadenza, obtrude, cyborg, sylvan, sagacious, and casuist? No cheating now, no peeking at the dictionary, printed or electronic. Answers later in the programme. So, how has the role of the lexicographer changed then, would you say? 
I would really like to sort of knock on the head this idea that it's it's a bunch of old geezers in a sort of dusty garret leafing through index cards. It, it sounds quite romantic, but actually the dictionary business nowadays is much more connected with the world of search engines. You know, it's basically research designed to get computers to understand language and work with language, which is very, yeah. very important. Very. Uh, so we don't use index cards. We use computers. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and specifically, we use language corpora. And now, a corpus is a big collection of texts from newspapers, novels, academic papers, and so on, stored in digital form on a computer. And most dictionary operations will be using language corpora of perhaps a billion or two billion words of English so that we can get very accurate information about the frequency of different patterns or different meanings or different words. I could show you how that works on my little iPad. Um, Now, I'm going to put in the word advice. And this is what comes up. Columns and columns. It's a quick snapshot of how the word is most commonly used. Give, provide, so offer, are, seek. Yeah, these are the sort of common take, get, verbs need. that are used with it. So mm. what it's telling us, first of all, is that we have 305,240 examples of the word advice in our corpus. And then we can see how it's predominantly used. And we've got here a column of adjectives that are right. often Legal, used with it. Good, Legal advice, good advice, practical, practical advice. professional, further... Gosh, it's amazing. Oh, every word I find expands my mind. And I find words of every shape and kind. I try to live my life as full as can be. And I live it in words from A to Z. Cause I'm addicted to the dictionary. I'm addicted to the dictionary. We've talked about size in relation to dictionaries, but what about the size of our personal lexicons? We're told that a small vocabulary can hold us back both socially and economically. There are thousands of books and websites encouraging us to improve our word power, remember Reader's Digest, and so live a more successful life. It's nothing new. Robert Cordry's Table Alphabetical, published in 1604, stated up front that it had been put together for, and here I quote, the benefit and help of ladies, gentlemen, women or any other unskillful persons whereby they may the more easily and better understand many hard English words which they shall hear or read in scriptures, sermons or elsewhere and also be made able to use the same aptly themselves. Well, Mr. Cordry wouldn't be able to get away with that today, but how many words do we know? And perhaps more importantly, how many words do we use aptly or otherwise? I suspect the average Joe knows a lot more than the average Joe thinks. And I think that the people who think they have a good vocabulary are probably right. New Zealander Averill Coxhead of Wellington's Victoria University is an expert in this area. Her university is in the vanguard for devising tests to measure individual vocabulary size. But how are they devised? Are there any scientific principles on which they're based? If you have a first language speaker of English, who's a teenager, for example, you take their age and you minus it by two, and then times it by a thousand. So that means that if you're 16, it'd be 16 minus two, 14 times by a thousand, makes 14,000 words. And the research that we've been doing with these first language speakers suggests that on average people go up, you know, roughly a thousand words a year. But unfortunately there's a ceiling beyond which Averill's formula doesn't hold good. A shame, as it would be encouraging to think one was adding a thousand new words for every year of life lived. But this exponential growth stops around the time one hits university. 
However, there's a crumb of comfort for the oldies among us. Unlike our physical prowess, our word power doesn't diminish, unless, of course, we're unlucky enough to get some form of dementia. Arnold Bennett put it on record that he read a dictionary for 20 minutes every day. He was a professional writer, so words were his stock in trade. But would such a regime benefit the average Joe? How are you going to keep hold of these words that you meet? How are you going to make the association with your life to make these words part of your lexicon? And I think that that's part of the problem. That's why reading a dictionary tends to fall away. By the time you've finished A, you've aged five years, and you, you can't necessarily remember all of those things. Averill was hinting there at the difference between a passive and an active knowledge of vocabulary, another factor which makes testing vocabulary size problematic. We know more about the receptive vocabulary of people, how many words they know or they can recognise. The problem is it's very difficult to find out how many words people can use. What do you do? Do you sit people in a small room for 12 years and say, now tell me all of the words that you know in English? Or do you get them to go through a dictionary and then count all the words that they know? You know, a lot of people's lives are shortened by such research, you know, (laughs) really. And you can certainly tie yourself in knots as a researcher trying to find out the answers to these questions. Right, now for the answers to our own mini vocab test. Here are the meanings of the six words I gave you earlier. What we're testing is your receptive vocabulary. Cadenza is a passage in a piece of music which shows a player's skill. Obtrude, to thrust forward on a person's attention. Cyborg, an organism whose abilities are enhanced by machine. Sylvan, to do with woodland. Sagacious, gifted with discernment, instinctively clever. And casuist, an oversubtle or specious reasoning. All six right? Go to the top of the class. Well, I expect you want me to give you a word power score, but other than saying you're in the top percentile of the population, that's very difficult to do. Uh, Michael, perhaps you can explain that. Yeah, well, I I know uh, Averill's research, and it does give a pretty good indication of people's vocabulary size. But as she hinted, it's quite a complex uh, question because it depends what you mean by knowing a word. There's the issue of recognising it. Uh, There's a a big difference between recognising a word and being able to use it in a natural, idiomatic way. You can know a word but not know it entirely. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, context is everything. Even if you think of a a simple English word like treat, if I say to you, what does treat mean? Well, there isn't an answer to that, except to say, well, it depends. I mean, is it a noun or is it a verb? And everything is governed by context, so that you can get a pattern like the doctor treated me with with penicillin, but you could also have the doctor treated me with contempt or, or yes. uh, respect. And, or the and nurse uh, gave me uh, a, a cup of tea and a biscuit as a treat afterwards. <laughs> exactly, or treated me too. Yes. And so the way we unravel these things for dictionaries is, is always to look at context. If you think of a word like reek, W-R-E-A-K, OK, you can know what it means, but you've got to know what sorts of things people reek when they go around reeking. And, um, when they have wrought. Or, yeah. yeah. And most of the time, you because reek... people do say reeked havoc, but it should be wrought... Well, I say should. It, should it be wrought havoc? <laughs> it would have been... It would, it would have, have been. been at one time. <laughs> yes. but, but, you know, things have moved on. But over, yes, you reek havoc. About it. Well, uh, havoc, you're right, is, yeah. is the most common object of reek. But you can reek revenge, you can reek yeah. vengeance. But there aren't that many things that you can normally reek. But what's really interesting is that, on the one hand, you've got this vast store of available vocabulary. On the other hand, we don't actually use that many words in practice. Most texts, uh, and by text I mean, you know, a book, a newspaper, conversation, whatever, 
make use of quite a small number of very frequent words. And there's an interesting statistic, which is that 25% of everything you read or hear is made up of just 10 very, very frequent English words, like the, of, and, uh, and, you know, verbs like to be and to go and so on. And in fact, the 10,000 most frequent words in English make up over 95% of most text. Well, let's try and identify where new words come from. English, famously, has always been a mongrel language, an insatiable borrower. Um, Celtic, Latin, Greek, Viking, Germanic, French have all contributed to the richness of English. And it was never just a question of people coming to these shores. Britain's colonial past imported many new words. In fact, in the 19th century, a whole dictionary appeared. Hobson Jobson, a glossary of colloquial Anglo-Indian words and phrases. Words from Indian languages absorbed by English during the British rule of India. Tom Stoppard had fun with it in his radio play In the Native State, broadcast by the BBC in 1991. Here's Felicity Kendall as the central character. While having Tiffin on the veranda of my bungalow, I spilled kedgeree on my dungarees and had to go to the gymkhana in my pyjamas looking like a coolie. <laughs> However would we manage without our bungalows and our pyjamas? But what effect might India's new status as an emerging economic power have on the English language? Did you know the city of Bangalore has become a verb? To be bangalored means to be laid off because of the outsourcing of call centre jobs. And not only to Bangalore. Could be Hyderabad too. I've been Hyderabaded. We asked Richard Shapiro, an editor of the OED who monitors future trends, to speculate on which Indian words might make it into English in, say, 20 years' time. We gave Richard's list to writer and Indian-born actress Nina Wadia and said, be creative. Hello, and thank you for calling the Bangalore Hotel. How may I assist you today? Yes, hi. Um, I'd like to book a room for three nights from Wednesday. That would be my maha pleasure, sir. Oh, uh, actually, make that three nights from Tuesday. No problem, sir. I will prepone that for you in the instant. I beg your pardon? I have done the needful. That is preponed. Now, sir, will you be going outstation during your stay with us? Sorry? Like to Mumbai or Delhi, perhaps? Yes, I will be flying down to Mumbai and back during my visit, and I'll need... Of course, sir. We understand that when people come here on business, that they need to air dash all over. Air dash? Yes, sir. But don't worry, my coolie will take your luggage from the cupboard and pack it into the auto rickshaw very nicely. No, I don't think I want anyone to... And, sir, don't worry if you forget to pack some things for your stay... We are prepared for every eventuality, from needing some half-pants to replacing lost opticals. (laughs) Are you going to need car hire during your stay here, sir? Um, yes. Super fine. I have a batchmate who will give you a very good deal. And his uncle owns the petrol bunk, so you can fill up almost for free. Only do watch out for the new speed breakers in the city, sir. If you go over them too fast, you could do some maha damage to your undercarriage. And if you get stopped by the police for drink driving... I don't drink and drive. Yes, but if you want to start, sir, then I have a cousin who works in the district jail and he will make sure that you have a very short under trial and you might even escape scot-free. <laughs> May I ask you one more really super-duper very important question, sir? If I can understand it. Will you be requiring any assistance with your business trip here? Like introductions to VVIP people like government ministers or help with your chit fund? A chit 
what? Look, all I need is to... I know, I know. All you need is a good Indian wife who will do your bidding in the living room, dining room and every other room. Just please do be considering me because I really wish to get out of the hotel business and get bangalore instead. Oh. <laughs> uh, sir? Sir? Hmm. Now really, what does a girl have to do to get outsourced these days? Nina Wadia and Nigel Carrington in a sketch written by Nina Wadia. I rather like prepone, so much more positive than the alternative. Michael, do you have any uh, favourites from that? Have you come across some of them before? I have, yeah, um, but but not all of them. It's 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 an interesting mix, isn't it, of um, quite old-fashioned phraseology, like yes. do the needful, uh, and then words which are alternative Indian English words for things like speed breakers, she yes. mentions, as a, we say speed bumps, I suppose. Then there are these very nice kind of new, definitely Indian coinages, using maha, for example. Yes, maha. And some of that sort of stuff might not travel that well in the rest of the English-speaking world. But being Bangalore is great, of course, because it's, a, as you say, it's a place name turned into a verb. And there, yeah. there aren't very many of those. I think you can be yeah. shanghai and uh, can. <laughs> not too many. Any others, so uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting, and and, and I think it shows um, York that course, you've sorry, got cricket. While we were talking about it, just occurred to me, Yorked him. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. So it shows that you've got a, a confident language community yeah. there, which is developing its own language, and and some of this will travel mm. and, and be absorbed into general English, and some of it will just stay where it is. Well, English's status as a global language, the lingua franca of the 21st century, means it will always be the most mongrel of languages, and there won't be just one English. Non-native speakers of English hugely outnumber native speakers. Our New Zealander, Averill Coxhead, leaves us with an example of le mot juste, adopted from Maori into Kiwi English. There's a word in Māori which is mana, and we just don't have a translation for that word in English. It means something like... Um, somebody who has a lot of respect, they are very well thought of, well considered, um, and there's nothing in English that is as concise as, you know, this person has mana, and that's all there is to it. And you can think about it in terms of, I don't know, a rugby analogy, for example. Richie McCaw, the current captain of the All Blacks, is somebody that we would consider that has mana. How do you translate that into English? I don't know, but you know when you meet somebody who's got it, you know. So that means that the word mana is very much part of the New Zealand lexicon. Um, I was listening to somebody who is from the UK who did some postgraduate education in New Zealand and we were talking yesterday and he used the word mana. So that's a Scottish speaker of English who was educated in New Zealand for a couple of years and he freely uses the word mana because he knows what it means and it's part of his lexicon too. So, you know, it might spread to Scotland, who knows, because we don't have a word in English that has that same resonance or has that same sense of place and person. I think you just can't replace it with anything else. So if you were to do a test of New Zealand English, for example, you would have to include words in Māori in order to get a real sense of the vocabulary size. There you are. 
manna from heaven, as she would say. So, so, Michael, what about social networking, Twitter and everything? There's a huge amount of extra pressure on the language now. It's no longer just the birds who tweet and Twitter. Most obviously, it's adding quite a lot of new vocabulary to the language. In the Macmillan Dictionary, we have 30 or 40 items that come from social networking, words like hashtags, Twittersphere, Twitterati, defriend, and things like that. Yeah. But there are also, you know, new meanings of existing words. Uh, an interesting one that we've just added is like in the social networking sense of if you yes. say 250 people have liked this, then liking something doesn't just mean having a feeling. It means actually yes, taking some taking kind of action. action. So, so, click so click that meaning has changed. Troll, we've got new meanings of troll. We've got new meanings of jailbreak, for example, where you jailbreak yes. a phone. So there's all that kind of thing. To, and, uh, um, to brick as a, as a verb? My phone bricked. Oh, yeah. It's that's quite right. a good yeah, one. There's, there's quite I, a lot of phone. Because yeah. yeah. obviously phones are our, our yeah. far day makeums. They're a so, constant yeah. companions. But, but I think the significant thing is that this is part of a bigger change. It's a change to the sort of media model where instead of having a small number of producers and a large number of consumers, everybody wants to get involved. Everyone wants to have their say. This creates quite an opportunity, I think, for dictionaries. I have a friend who is what we call a computational linguist. Uh, these are usually the smartest guys in the room. He's devised a piece of software which automatically trawls through Twitter feeds looking for new words. So we're getting a lot of new language. Uh, a huge number of them would be misspellings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it has to be pretty carefully managed. But then there's the, the whole question of crowdsourcing, you know, is part of that zeitgeist of, of people wanting to sort of join in. I think it has to be carefully managed, but yes. I think that there's, uh, there's a lot of mileage in crowdsourcing if, if it's done right. I know somebody, for example, who works on the National Dictionary of Malaysia. Right. And one of the things they have to do is to produce Malaysian equivalents to new English words, things like 3D printing or Twitter or whatever yeah. it may be. The approach they take is that they work out two or three possibilities which are based on Malaysian word formation rules, and then they offer them to the public to see which is the most popular. But the French, they have a planned language and they have the famous Académie Française. Do you think there's any value in trying to stop words coming into the language in the way that they appear to do? Uh, no, I don't think there is. And, and I'm very glad that we don't have an academy. I think it would be a disaster. Johnson didn't think much of academies either. I've got a quote from him here where he says, their vigilance and activity have hitherto been vain. In other words, they don't work. You can't stop language changing. And he says words are too volatile and subtle and to enchain syllables and to lash the wind are equally the undertakings of pride. Brilliant. As always, so good, John Johnson always has the right thing to say. But there is this public perception of of lexicographers as sort of gatekeepers mm. to the language, uh, you know, whose job is to let the good words in and keep the bad words out. And it really isn't like that. To include a word in a dictionary, you want to see evidence that that word is widely used and it's not just been made up as a sort of creative exploitation by one person. And having good corpus resources, which are now very easily available, gives us the raw material to make those sort of decisions. And this idea that people who work on dictionaries are necessarily pedantic. People are often disappointed when, you know, they meet me and they say, oh, you're a lexicographer. And they sort of assume that I'm going to be very prescriptive, prescriptive and to share their dislike of... Yes, uh, don't you hate that way, is, the yes, way that's H right, is yeah. pronounced H and all well, that sort right. of thing? And, yeah. and don't you think decimate should be used in the way it was used Promises. by the Romans and, and <laughs> so on? You know, that's just not how language works. Thank you so much, Michael. This has been wonderful. So, in this programme, we've found that additions to the English language come from many sources, and they all contribute to the English we love.
One distinguished editor of the OED used to say that the English language had a well-defined centre but no discernible circumference, and his theory is still relevant today as the circumference gets even bigger at an ever faster rate. Truly, words without end. Michael, do you have a little something to leave us with, a new buzzword perhaps? Well, there's one that you might like, which is uh, this term vocal fry. Now, uh, <laughs> don't ask me why it's called that. It's a kind of vocal tick where, let me see if I can do this, uh, where someone says something like, oh, really, this is so gross. And your, you know, your, your vocal cords are vibrating. Quite you... Lloyd Grossman there. <laughs> Not intentional. <laughs> Well, for this vocal fry, it's thank you and goodbye. <laughs> addicted to the dictionary. I'm addicted to the dictionary. Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry and produced by Marilyn Harris. It was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4.